I am basically doing an extended book review of a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a guy called Carl Truman. And I've had a number of people who have read this book with me over the last few months. And I, you can raise your hand if you've been reading the book. Who's been reading the book, see? <laughs> Roman's hand's half up. Uh, <laughs> but yes, that's great. It's been great to meet with you guys. Does anybody still need a handout? Have you got more handouts? Are there any more over this side? Are there any more handouts on that side? No? Any spare handouts? No. Just, are you still short of one? No, you're all right. You don't need a handout, Vanessa. You can ask me later. Great. In lots of ways, I think 2022, for some of us, feels a little bit like an alien country, doesn't it? Um, I, I was listening the other day, apparently it's only 20 years ago that it was illegal to be gay and in the UK armed forces. And that just seems like incredible that that uh, rule would even exist. Now you can get married to someone as a same-sex couple in a church. Uh, last year in the UK, the census, there was some controversy about asking people to indicate their biological sex. Uh, that question has been on the census since 1801. It has never until now been a controversial question. And the solution was that they would ask a supplementary question later on in the census for people to identify their gender as well. And there was a qualification written after the question on answering your biological sex so that you weren't offended by it as a question. I mean, we could go on uh, with all sorts of different examples of cultural change, but I don't think we need to, do we? We all acknowledge that we live in a time of rapid cultural change. Uh, which has left many people, and in large part, I think, the church spinning in confusion. And I know that I need some help here in thinking this through. I know that I will not do a good job of serving you as a pastor if I don't think about these issues, because I know that for many of you, uh, these are things that you're facing day in, day out in the places that you work. And so one of the reasons that I encouraged a group of us to read uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is because I thought this book might be a help to us to try and think through how we've arrived at the place that we have arrived. Uh, in some ways, the book has been brilliant. Uh, in other ways, the book has been uh, disappointing. If you want to know the disappointments, uh, you will hear some of them, but I'm sure other people in the group will be able to, to tell you more. One of the things the book is really clear about is that it's not a lament. He's not writing the book to say, oh, things were great in the good old days. Uh, in fact, he quite humorously points out that it was quite difficult to argue that being a child in Victorian Britain was better than being a child today. You might not be able to, you might not be asked to identify your gender based on your feelings, but you might have been sent up a chimney to sweep it or down a mine to dig it, which arguably is worse or left to rot in a miserable orphanage. Instead, uh, Truman sets out the point of his book in the introduction by saying this, and this is on your handout, all the quotes are on your handout. The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet he had never Sorry, and yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet, today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard not only as meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or to question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, 
or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And that's the argument of his book as he tries to come to terms with that. In some ways, the, the broad strokes of the book is fairly clear. Truman is a historian, and he wants to show us that what feels like, as we experience it today, a period of rapid cultural change has, in fact, been a long time coming. Uh, the, the sexual promiscuity of the 1960s, the romantic poets of the early 19th century, plus Darwin, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, and a whole load of other people who I hadn't heard of before picking up the book, have been pushing our culture in this particular direction for a long time. Here he is again in his own words. At the heart of this book lies a basic conviction. The so-called sexual revolution of the last 60 years, culminating in its latest triumph, the normalization of transgenderism, cannot be properly understood until it's set within the context of a much broader transformation in how society understands the nature of human selfhood. Now that links, I think, to probably what is the single most helpful insight of the book, or certainly one of them, and if you remember nothing else this evening, and that might well be the case, um, if you remember nothing else, uh, think about this insight. Truman argues, and I think proves quite easily, that where the church has gone particularly wrong in dealing with this issue, and why it causes so much heat in discussions that we have, is that when we engage with these issues in the world, we think of them in categories of morality, what's right and wrong. But for most people, they understand these issues as identity, about who they are. In other words, in our world today, who I choose to have sex or not have sex with is not so much a matter of what I believe to be right and wrong, morality, as much as I believe about who I really am, my identity. Does that make sense? So... When, as a Christian, I say that the Bible says that all sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man to one woman is morally wrong in the eyes of God, what I'm heard to say, because people hold them in the category of identity, not morality, what I'm heard to say is, you are an unworthy person. You don't deserve to exist. Truman writes this, if it were just sexual activity that were at issue, passions would likely not run so deep. Far more than codes of behavior are at stake here. In addressing the behavior that has come to prominence through the sexual revolution, we are actually not so much speaking of practices as we are speaking of identities. And when we're speaking of identities, the public political stakes are incredibly high and raise a whole different set of issues. One of the things that's uh, helpful about Truman's book is that he has summary chapters at the end of each section, which if you're discussing it in a book club is a great delight, isn't it? Because you get to read just the summary chapter before the discussion and you can bluff your way through the discussion. No one ever did that, I don't think, but there you go. Just in theory, you could do that. Uh, this book is divided into four parts, the architecture of the revolution, the foundations of the revolution, the sexualization of the revolution, and the triumphs of the revolution. And I, in this... Uh, overview have got basically two sections where I'm dealing with part one and part two and then part three and part four. So firstly, let's think about the basics of the revolution in part one and part two. In part one, Truman lays essentially what is a bit of the groundwork for helping us understand what identity means and how that's understood by our culture. He's basically outlining the thoughts of two different people, one called Charles Taylor and another called Philip Reef. Charles Taylor is important because he describes what he calls the social imaginary. The social imaginary is important because it explains how people who don't really read philosophy, 
I mean, I know there are some people here who read philosophy books. Jonah reads philosophy books just for fun, don't you, Jonah? But not many people do that, okay? So how does the, the writings of serious philosophers get into the regular person in the street? And Charles Taylor argues that that's through the social imaginary, as people's uh, ideas are shaped by what they experience intuitively around them in the world. As societies imagine an ideal and then approve or disapprove of what contributes to that ideal, and that those ideas are often disseminated in, in art and films and books and poems and those sorts of things. Taylor also helps Truman out with a distinction between what he calls the mimetic view of the world and a poiesis view of the world, which is fancy words describing something quite simple, okay? It's the idea that the world in a mimetic Mimet oh, I can't even say it now. In a mimetic view, the idea that the world has a given order and a meaning towards the idea that the, the world is really a poesis world where it has the raw material, but we have to provide the meaning to it. In other words, Taylor is arguing that we have shifted from thinking, say, for example, that meaning is inbuilt into my body, okay? Uh, thinking in a, what he would describe as a mimet uh, mimetic view that my body, by being a male body, has something to teach me about what my life is for and who I am, okay? We've, we've rejected that, and we've gone towards a way of thinking that essentially means that we have nothing to learn from the physical realities of our bodies. But actually, that is just the raw material for me then to decide who I really am and what I really want to live my life for. And so it's that, that shift from thinking that meaning comes and is within reality to thinking that actually meaning comes from my decisions about who I would like to be because the material reality is just raw material that I'm working with. Uh, Reef, on the other hand, charts the cultural change in a slightly different way by describing four different men. It's a bit of a simplification and they acknowledge that, but Reef basically outlines four steps in how we understand ourselves and our place in the world. So he goes through history uh, stating this. So firstly comes political man who followed Plato and Aristotle and finds meaning in uh, public life and ethics. You know, he attends the Areopagus in Athens, you might know that from Acts 17, debates ideas about what life is for in civic Rome and the empire and how that should be shaped. After them come religious man who find their meaning and purpose in the Roman church and in its religious activities and pilgrimages. Uh, religious man then gives way to economic man who in the Industrial Revolution finds purpose in economic activity and trade and making money, who has now passed on to psychological man, of who Truman says, psychological man, a type characterized not so much by finding identity in outward-directed activities as was true for the previous types, but rather the inward quest for personal psychological happiness. So we've gone from people who engage in activities out there to find our meaning. Instead, we're in this inward quest for personal psychological happiness. Now, he admits that it's an oversimplification, but Truman leans on this really heavily all the way through the book and explaining that he thinks that we live uh, much of our lives in the categories of what he calls psychological man. Now, there's one more thing to point out here before we move on, and that's although our view of ourselves is highly individual, and internal, you know, this pressure isn't there to be authentically who I think I am, yeah? So I decide myself who I am and what my meaning and what my purpose is, but I, I need to be authentic to my own feelings. 
Yet still, even in that personal authenticity, there's still a need for that to be approved of by those around me. This is really significant and helpful, I think. This explains why we often get into hot water. Let me, let me try and give you a really stupid example. If I, if I said to you that I identified as a, as a dog, right, and I, I said that I was a, a labradoodle or something, yeah, it would not be good enough just for me to identify as that and just to say that that's who I am. I would also need you to approve of my right to identify like that. Does that make sense? I use a silly example just so that you're not thinking anything other than the example. You know, this is hardwired into us, this need for approval from others in the culture around us. I need you to agree with me because it turns out that my identity isn't just found internally. It also has to be validated externally. So society at large needs to recognize the authority of an individual to say who they are and to shape their interactions around that individual's decision. And we see that at work all over, don't we, today? That the role of society is essentially to rubber stamp and approve not only the right of an individual to decide their identity, but the decision that they have made about their identity, however ridiculous that might be. So we've shifted, haven't we, from a society telling us who we should be based on our sex or our societal position or the job of our parents to a society that has to bend to my ideas of who I am and what I say my life is for. Now, Truman builds on this by showing us the difference between Rousseau and Augustine. Um, I can see you're all fascinated by this. But anyway, I'll keep going. Rousseau and Augustine both wrote books called The Confessions. So Augustine was a Christian bishop from North Africa writing in the 5th century. And in his book, The Confessions, he retells a story of him and a group of friends stealing pears. Now, in lots of ways, as Augustine reflects on the stealing of pears, he thinks... This is a totally illogical thing for me to do. Why are, am I in a group of friends? Why are we stealing pears? I have perfectly good pears in my garden at home. In fact, in my garden at home are better pears than the pears that I'm stealing. So why am I stealing pears, he says. And as he reflects on it, he realizes that the reason for stealing the pears is something deep-seated within him that loves to rebel. This is kind of what we were looking at this morning, isn't it? For Augustine, there is a personal sinful desire to break the law for no other reason other than the fact that he loves to break the law. Rousseau, on the other hand, doesn't steal pears. He steals asparagus, which is altogether more sophisticated. <laughs> but he too is encouraged to do that by those around him. But Rousseau comes to a very different conclusion about why is it that he stole the asparagus. It's not because inside of him there is a deep, sinful desire to break the law. Instead, for Rousseau, it's the external pressure of the people around him that made him do something that otherwise he would have chosen not to do. Society made him do it, says Rousseau. Leading to the conclusion for Rousseau that it is society that's bad and a bad influence on the individual, where the individual himself or herself is actually pure. And so that being more authentic to who I am without the pressure of the external society is the route to being a better person. Truman spells it out like this. We might therefore summarize the basic difference between the two men as follows. Augustine blames himself for his sin because he is basically wicked from birth. Rousseau blames society for his sin because he's basically good at birth and then perverted by external forces. 
Now you can see, can't you, that that's massively significant in how we understand what it means to be human and who we are and our individualism and all that sort of stuff. Uh, because this understanding of how society is a, an oppressive force on us becomes a significant theme uh, in our uh, cultural narrative. This uh, society uh, forces us to be a certain way, forcing us to be less than honest about who we really are. So society becomes the baddie, doesn't it, in the contemporary world, stopping people through foul means from becoming who they should be if they were allowed to be authentically themselves. Uh, Truman teases out the significance of that in a number of areas which we don't have uh, time to go into. But one fascinating one is education. Why? Yeah, so there's a number of young people here, aren't there, which is great. Why do you go to school? Why do you go to school? Why do you, why do you get an education? What's the point of that? I know you're probably actually thinking something very similar to that. Why am I bothering? But anyway, why do you go to school? Well, traditionally, you would have gone to school for formation, for you to be educated and formed into a person as you learn stuff. But more and more now, you go to school to perform, yeah? To be who you really are, to have an opportunity to express yourself. And to flourish as a person is the words that we would use. Now, again, you might want to argue the rights and wrongs of that and whether there's uh, some truth in both of those things. But you can see how that kind of pressure has come from this cultural shift into the reasons that uh, we believe that society is bad. Now, it's important to be clear that Rousseau doesn't assume that anyone has really uh, read Rousseau or understood any of his arguments. But still, it's clear that his ideas about an oppressive nature of polite society, perhaps maybe particularly represented by the church, is commonplace today. Here again, Truman concludes, a further point of contact between Rousseau and our age, one that stands in positive connection to his psychologicalizing of selfhood, is the notion that it is society or culture that is the problem. The idea that perhaps is one of the most dominant social and political assumptions today, that society or nurture is to blame for the problems individuals have in this world, not the individuals themselves considered an abstraction from their social environment, is virtually an unquestioned orthodoxy, and it influences everything from philosophies of education to debates about crime and punishment. There you go, he carries on. It should, for example, be clear that some such construction of freedom and selfhood as that offered by Rousseau is at work in the modern transgender movement, that it is the inner voice freed from any and all external influences, even from chromosomes and the primary sexual characteristics of the physical body that shapes identity for the transgender person is a position consistent with Rousseau's idea that personal authenticity is rooted in the notion that nature, free from heteronormous cultural constraints and selfhood, conceived of as inner psychological conviction, are the real guides to true identity. This is the problem with the book, okay? Lots of big words to explain fairly simple things. Um, but hopefully that's clear. Rousseau saying it's actually the oppression of outside preventing us from flourishing about who we think we are on the inside. Now, following that, Truman makes two big steps forward in his argument. I want to try and simplify them and deal with them briefly if I can. So if Rousseau said that society was corrupting and that good moral living was to be rooted in being free as possible from the, the kind of tyranny of the oppressive society, 
Then the next step came with the Romantics and the period of Romanticism, which agreed with Rousseau's view of the corruption of society and romanticized rural life away from the corrupt oppression of the growing cities of the time. They taught mostly in romantic poetry, or so-called romantic poetry, that the most significant place of this oppression is the church and Christianity, especially as it oppresses people's sexual behavior. Sexual behavior was seen by the romantics as a, a central element of being authentic as an individual. Now, that wasn't to say that they were denying any kind of sexual morality. They weren't at the time. They said that actually nature itself contained a sexual morality. They weren't advocating for a total sexual free-for-all that we see today. That comes later in the next step. But together they, uh, they kill this idea that there's any external moral code that needs to be kept. So Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin build on these ideas. And in this next step, they basically say, well, Nietzsche says famously, doesn't he, God is dead. Not so much in kind of vitriol, but really as a means to try and persuade humanity to take the place of God for themselves. Listen, we know, don't we, says Nietzsche, that God is unnecessary. He's dead as a concept. We don't need him. And so we need to step into that void ourselves and be the gods who we know we really are. Sounds terrifyingly like the Bible's description of sin, doesn't it? Now, it didn't work out too well for Nietzsche himself, who lost his mind and died a crazy man. But Marx agreed with him, essentially, that it was belief in God uh, and organized religion that was being used as a means of oppression by the upper classes. And then Darwin delivers the hammer blow by giving a kind of scientific proof, or so he said, to the fact that we weren't created by God anyway. Here's a scary summary of all of this from Truman. Here he says, Certainly, Rousseau and the Romantics placed a high premium on emotions for moral education. But their assumption that there was a common human nature that could lead to agreement on what things should arouse appropriate empathy and sympathy or anger or outrage. Take away the notion of human nature, and all that's left is a free-floating subjective sentiment. The seeds of today's moral anarchy where personal emotional preferences are constantly confused with moral absolutes, is thus to be found in the 19th century. The seeds of today's moral anarchy, where personal emotional preferences are const constantly confused with moral absolutes, is thus to be found in the 19th century. He continues, the idea that religion, specifically Christianity, is a corrupt ideology used by hypocritical religious leaders to hinder human beings from being truly happy is commonplace today. It finds pungent philosophical expression in Nietzsche and Marx. The idea that moral codes, specifically sexual codes, are oppressive and actually militate against human happiness and create social ills is also an intuitive part of the way many in Western society now think. And I don't think it's hard to argue with... Sorry, I think it's hard to argue with that. I think that's largely proven, isn't it? Now, we are whizzing through what is a complex book, but hopefully you can see what he's trying to teach us that the alien land that we find ourselves in has been a long time coming. Well, we've ended up on this trajectory uh, where we've, we've come from a long history of people pushing us in that direction philosophically. Uh, this idea that individuals have the right to determine who they really are and what is right and wrong, to find happiness in personal sexual fulfillment, that has been kind of brewing for some time. But also the thing that I think he's showing us in this is although it's been brewing for some time, it's been brewing and led by people who probably really don't know what they're talking about, uh, which is a scary thought. 
Let's move on to parts three and four, the sexualization of the revolution. Now, before we come to some kind of conclusion, these are a couple more things that Truman adds. He wants to show first how this uh, understanding of self and identity has become very sexualized in our culture. And then he wants to talk about where that sexualized revolution is particularly seen and where it particularly triumphs uh, in his language. In chapter six of his book, Truman spends a lot of time engaging with Freud. And he comments on a couple of occasions how most of Freud's methods and conclusions are now disputed in philosophy, but how still his understanding of sex and sexuality is massively popular um, and at the root of the sexualization of the revolution. Um, here's a fairly long quote, but I think it makes the point uh, reasonably clearly. Let me read it to you. Freud has, in fact, provided the West with a compelling myth, not in the sense of a narrative that everybody knows is false, but in the sense of a basic idea which we can understand the world around us, regardless of whether it's true in the common sense way of understanding that word. That myth is the idea that sex, in terms of sexual desire and sexual fulfillment, is the real key to human existence, to what it means to be human. Nobody looking at Western society today could fail to see how sex dominates the culture in a way unknown to our ancestors in the Middle Ages or early modern age. From art to politics, sex is omnipresent. And thinking of human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desire is now virtually intuitive for all of us. We are categorized as straight, gay, bi, queer, and so on. And sexual preferences, once considered private and personal, are now matters of public interest, means by which we are recognized by the world around us. Truman tells us that this myth of Freud comes from this principle that he seems to establish, uh, that it's not, sex is not so much about having children as having pleasure, saying, in effect, that true happiness is sexual satisfaction. So while Rousseau argued that it was the, the corrupting oppression of the culture which made people feel bad and unhappy, Freud said that it's the sexual oppression of the culture, driven mostly by the church, which makes people feel sexually repressed and therefore unhappy. Sex and, in effect, sexuality as a desire for sex become, in effect, the most important part for Freud about being human. And, says Freud, that that applies not only to adults, but also scarily applies to children as well, where even before puberty, everything about their behavior can be understood as connected to an infant's sexuality. And that means, and this I think is going to sound scarily familiar to some of you, education, like Rousseau said, is not so much about enforcing social conformity, but encouraging the child to discover themselves, especially their sexual identity. In chapter 7, Truman goes on to say how the thinking of Freud and Marx together have laid the foundation for critical theory. There's not a long analysis of critical theory coming up, and there wasn't one in the book. But he does show how Freud's understanding of sexual oppression and its effects, combined with Marx's idea about the oppression of the masses by the ruling classes, to say that the problem in our world is the oppression of sexual minorities, specifically lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. And that's where his final chapter lands, going through the contemporary successes of that movement in a whole raft of different areas, explaining that even the US Constitution is now read through that lens, for example. What's really helpfully articulated in the book, and it's worth spending some time thinking about it, is that the mismatch of the LGBTQ list. Truman points out, and really helpfully so, I think, that both lesbian and gay demand a clear distinction between what it is to be male and what it is to be female. Otherwise, it's illogical. It makes no sense. 
In fact, feminism as a movement is offended by the idea that a man can become a woman just by choosing out to live what a man thinks a woman is. It's deeply offensive, isn't it? You know, if you're a feminist, there is something unique about the female experience which is defined by being biologically a woman. You know, how can a man who has never had a period, who's never seen the, the, uh, the world through the eyes of a woman, how can he say that he wants to be a woman when he doesn't know what that fundamentally is? And how can being a woman be reduced to a pill that you take prescribed by a doctor or surgery that you can have performed by a doctor? Now, you can see why all that's massively offensive, can't you, to a, a feminist? Now, of course, those problems within the movement, and he spends a long time talking about those, they're never solved. Instead, they're eclipsed by what is perceived to be an even bigger problem, which is the oppression of society on sexual minorities, which then becomes the big unifying force. The enemy of your enemy is effectively my friend, Truman argues. Now, again, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but he helpfully spells out how this kind of victimhood is the key virtue of the alliance, meaning essentially that the alliance of all of these groups becomes what he calls an anti-culture. But what he means is they're not out to build something, they're out to destroy something. All those who disagree by any means possible. Listen to this conclusion on this. It's noteworthy that the lack of internal coherence of the LGBTQ plus movement makes it a poster child for the current age. As a political entity, it is truly an anti-culture. It is defined negatively by its rejection of the past norms and the destruction and erasure of the same. Given the past hostility of the L and the G towards each other, it even involves a significant act of cultural amnesia, that is forgetfulness, relative to its own history. And it is a death work because it uses the idioms of past cultures based on sacred order, most obviously to the language of marriage, love, and family, to undermine and destabilize those past orders by profaning their content and shattering their meaning. In other words, taking things that we would have understood one way and deconstructing them so that we understand them in a different way, which completely destroys them altogether. To separate gender from sex or to define marriage as the union between two or more people of the same sex is not to expand the traditional definitions of these things. It is to abolish them in their entirety. And the most honest advocates of the LGBTQ plus thought are very clear on this. Uh, so he really helpfully points out that the, actually the, the, the thing in the redefinition of marriage was not to redefine the word marriage. It is to destroy marriage as a thing altogether. Now, depressingly, that's the end of the book. I mean, that might not be depressing to you right now because you're thinking, oh, great, that means that the talk's nearly over. It is. But that is the end of the book. And in some ways, I think that is probably the most disappointing part of the book, that it just sort of leaves you there a little bit. He does have what he calls an unscientific prologue at the end, um, in which he says that lamenting the revolution is not going to help us. And I, I do think that one of the strengths of the book is that he... He's not aggressive or angry. He outlines these arguments in ways that people who disagree him would disagree with him would understand and recognize. He's not trying to just undermine anybody with cheap arguments. He is genuinely trying to do the hard work of understanding history uh, of thought. But he does say that lamenting the revolution is not going to help us and points out instead that the dignity of the individual, something that we long for in contemporary culture is actually something that is rooted in a right understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. In fact, 
That is a better place to find the dignity of the individual than any of the places suggested in contemporary thought. Here he is in his own words. The problem with expressive individualism is not its emphasis on the dignity or the individual value of every human being. That is what undergirded the fight against slavery in the 19th century and the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Rather, it's the fact that expressive individualism has detached these concepts of individual dignity and value from any kind of grounding in a sacred order. In other words, it's trying to have the individual dignity and identity that God alone can give us and trade on it without God being there at all. The West, he says, has become a decreated world, exemplified by its sexual chaos. It has come to reject the created divine image as the basis for its morality, and there was nothing left but a morass of competing tastes, whether it's the intellectual iconoclasm, which is like the destruction of things hold dear, of critical theory, or the more banal impact of consumerism, the untethering of what it means to be human from any kind of metaphysical framework has rendered the notion of universal individual dignity something that threatens to push the West into a kind of totalitarian anarchy, to use an oxymoron. In other words, he's not very hopeful or enthusiastic about where this is all going to end up. So Truman doesn't really offer a solution, and like I said, I think that's one of the weaknesses of the book. If you're looking for answers rather than explanations or history, you need to turn to a different book, I think. If you want a, a compelling commendation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, you need to really look at another book. Uh, the Bible would be a good place to start. Uh, but he never really lands that, and that I think is a shame, because I do think what actually the great thing that the Bible has to offer is a much better and more compelling story about what it means to be an individual of great dignity who knows who they are, not because they've thought of that themselves, but because God has given it to us in Christ. How amazing, young people particularly, I want you to hear this. It is possible for you to know who you are not because you've dug really deeply into your own psyche and soul to find it, but because God in Christ has told you who you are, that you are precious, that you belong to him, that you are saved by the blood of Christ, that you're a new creation in Christ. All those things outside of us have a much better, much more hope-filled, hope-fueled security for your identity if you understand and grasp them. And I think one of the, the kind of reasons that we feel desperately lost and anchorless is because if we're told to look inside ourselves for our meaning and our purpose, I don't know about you, but I look inside myself, I just see a terrible mess quite a lot of the time. Uh, it's even difficult to concentrate on one idea at any one time, isn't it? And so the idea that you can find your identity there is a terrible, terrible tyranny. Instead, we should receive it from the Lord Jesus. Anyway, I'm telling you that. Truman doesn't tell you any of that in his book. What he does say, though, is that the church should grow in its understanding of these issues and where they've come from. And that is a really helpful point. I think we need to tool up on being able to answer questions on these things. We should reflect on how our culture makes its decisions and where that's traveling from and to. It's important, I think, for you in your workplaces and in your schools to know that many things which are taken just as read today and are uncritically thought of as being true are quite new ideas rooted in some fairly hollow philosophy. Untested, dangerous philosophy even. So the church needs to uh, tool up and think uh, carefully about that, but also be careful not to argue on the same ground, but to maintain the moral principles of the scriptures rather than to give in on what might seem attractive to people around us. 
The Bible only makes sense, he says, within a framework of the existence of God and his act of creation. So we need to, to talk as if those things are true because they are true. As well, the church needs to uh, not reject history. Much of contemporary culture is anti-historical. I don't know whether you watch period dramas or uh, historical shows and they put modern ideas in the mouths of historical characters as if that's how they've always thought. That's complete nonsense, isn't it? And actually, if you read history, you will know that. And actually, we as a church need to uh, not be anti-historical in the same way. And then he comes up essentially with his final conclusion, which is that we need to be strong communities where it's possible for people to belong, places where the gospel is made clear, where people are loved. Here's our final quote for the evening. Yet there is hope. The world in which we live is now witness to communities in flux. The nation state no longer provides identity as the globalized world makes it seem impotent and ineffective as decades of being told in the West that patriotism is bad have taken their toll on the social imaginary. Many cities are anonymous places and suburbs function as giant commuter motels. It's written before COVID. We don't even commute anywhere, do we, anymore? Just to your bedroom. The loss of commercial town centers and the rise of the internet have detached people from real communities. One might indeed be tempted to despair at this point if it were not for the fact that human beings still need to belong, to be recognized and to have community. Perhaps this is where the church can learn from the LGBTQ plus community for whatever moral disapproval we must have towards it. It was, is a real community where real people look after each other in terms of meeting very real needs. And communities shape consciousness. There is a reason why Paul comments in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 that bad company corrupts morals. Our moral consciousness is very much shaped by our community. And for this reason, the church needs to be a strong community. And that's where he ends his book. Now, I hope that's been helpful, at least thought-provoking. And please do come and talk to me afterwards or ask me questions. I have put on the back some questions for you to think about, but our time has gone this evening. So you can go away and think about that with others uh, and talk to others about them um, as you would like to. Let me pray. Let me ask for God's help as we live in this confusing world that the Lord might help us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, in some ways that the history of thought is the history of sinful people trying to invent ways to live their lives without you. And we recognize that we're no better than that. And yet, in your mercy, through the Lord Jesus, by your spirit, you have given us new hearts that love you and long to live for you. Thank you that we know who we are because we are in Christ and Christ has saved us. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, live as a church in a thoughtful way in the world in which we live. And we pray that we might commend the gospel with a strong community where people are loved and cared for and where we encourage one another to live upright lives. Not because we believe that those upright lives in themselves save us, but because we want to live lives which please you, bring honour to you and glory to your name. So we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen.